weird because I, I hadn't actually during doing all the preparation work and going around and doing stuff on with, with Miss Laflamme, I hadn't actually paused to ponder what the death of, of the Queen meant to me. And seeing this almost a godson mount the catafalque was deeply moving. And it was the first time I realized this is a memorable thing that's happening that I've lived to see. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me, we have renowned journalist, author, and educator in Canada. He's the executive chair of the News Media Council, John Fraser. Thanks for joining me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Well, John, you have uh, written a lot over your life, and you've focused at certain times and also in things outside of your writing on the monarchy. And you are someone who would be considered a committed monarchist. Why is that? Straightforward reasons on one level. It's the system that we live under. We have a constitutional monarchy. It's our form of government, and it's not going away, no matter who wants it to go away. It's embedded in our history and in our constitution. And the problem for many Canadians is we, this isn't said as anti-American, but we are very much an echo culture of the United States. And very few people understand the role that the crown has played or the very fact that it's an evolutionary institution that that has evolved the same way the country itself has. So I always was interested in it. But in the last few years, I've, I've been sort of appalled at the lack of education about it. So I helped start an institution called the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada, which basically tries to bring scholarship to bear on on the role the crown plays in our country. It's not an advocacy. We're not we're not like the monarchist association, but we we can look at all sides. We look we look at issues that are important to people who want a republican system and try and answer those as best we can and as honestly as we can. I myself am committed because it's almost impossible to change the system and if that's the case, how do we make the system work? Yeah, what do you mean by impossible to ch- almost impossible to change the system? You talk about Republicans. Uh, what does that mean? Republicans are, would be people that preferred Canada not to have a monarchy, a crown. They would prefer to have either, uh, an, either an appointed or an elected presidency. The reason it's virtually impossible to change is our constitution requires every legislature in the country and the two federal legislatures, the House of Commons and the Senate, and all the provincial legislatures to agree to end it. And if you believe that it is possible to get 12 legislatures in this disputatious country of ours to agree on any one thing, then you, you can say truly the age of faith isn't over. I don't see it happening because if, at the very least, it would become a bargaining chip for things that other provinces want that are more important on their shopping list. So the whole business would become a constitutional brouhaha. And it's just it's not going to happen. Not in my lifetime anyway. And you see and you point out helpfully many of the positives that the crown and the monarchy brings to Canada, what would be maybe just like a couple that isn't educated enough into our country and that we kind of naively don't understand? I, I think the biggest single plus that it brings is one that we don't even, we just take for granted. We don't have a crisis for a head of state. We just don't. We have a, a system that just works and operates. The moment one monarch's dead, the next one becomes the next monarch. It may be a system that upset some people that haven't studied it very closely or who have strong visceral feelings against such a system. But it just happens. It, it, it means there's a whole level of controversy that we never deal with in this country. The Americans have a system that's much admired, and I admire it in many ways. But interestingly, they have a system that's modeled on 
Hanoverian monarchy. The, the president of the United States, the office is modeled on basically on George III's office because that was the only head of state they had as an example. They just said mm. it has to be elected. It's not going to be done by who you were born. But the president of the United States has all the powers of an 18th century sovereign, including his own cabinet. Um, he can declare war uh, without the consent of the legislature. But like George III, he still has to go to a lower legislature to get money approval. So Canada didn't have a revolution. It had an evolution. And our monarchy dwindled from being powerful to being a ceremonial role and and presenting a side of the head of state, which is the dignified part of it, whereas we can leave the politicians to be what politicians do best, which is bargaining all the ups and downs of any political life. And so that is the system that has worked in this country quite well, especially a country which has such regional variance and regional disputes. It is something that has helped keep the fabric of the country together. And sometimes it seems like we're all going to come apart, but all countries are like that. But we are actually one of the older continuing democracies in the history. Lots of people thought that when the Queen was going to die, that it was going to open up this huge debate. Well, there's always a debate, but it hasn't opened it up any further, and the transition's been completely smooth. Um, doesn't mean that it will stay that smooth. There's ups and downs. Um, there's always there's always there's always entertainment along the way. We've got Harry's book to all ponder, <laughs> which is the the entertainment of the month. But there's always been side stories to the crown. That whether it was whether it was Princess Margaret or Princess Diana or Edward the Eighth who abdicated or Edward the Seventh who was the playboy Prince of Wales in Queen Victoria's time or the wife of George the Fourth who wasn't allowed in the coronation was banging on the door. There has always been a side story, but the central truth of the business is that there's a constitutional role that works well for this country and has evolved through our vice regal figures, the, the governor general and lieutenant governors who represent the crown. And that seems to work. And it also has been a vehicle for getting minorities into pivotal positions to have strong platforms. So long before the electorate was prepared to have a black run things or, or a Chinese Canadian uh, or a woman for that matter, the offices, the vice-regal offices, have been able to have all categories of Canadians in, in a prominent position and to give a sense of, of the wider mm. horizons of the country. So to me, mm. that's all positive. Wow. Such a helpful overview. I want to just get you to lean in a little bit more on that. Minorities having a platform. How far back does this go in Canada? The first woman to be elected a governor was none to us, Mrs. McGibbon. That was in the 19. 50s. The first black leader was Lincoln Alexander, as Ontario Lieutenant Governor. Ontario has been the leader in these appointments, but these appointments are all from the federal government, ultimately, although the Queen in name is there. The uh, indigenous vice regal figures, we have one now as Governor General, but long before that, there, were, there was an indigenous Lieutenant Governor in Saskatchewan. It's an office that, that can jump over the immediate hurdles of political concerns. It just can be done. Oh, that's really interesting. So let's talk about the, the transition in the crown. You went over and covered the funeral. You had a vantage point to this climactic moment in the last uh, couple hundred years. You're there. What was that like? It was amazing. I was lucky. I got a, a publishing company named Sutherland House that wanted a, a, a quick book. And they approached me because I knew the owner was a former writer for Saturday Night Magazine. And the idea is a new concept in a book, which was a short book, 
25,000 words and to get it out fast. And so I jumped at it because I know the file. So mm-hmm. it was, I went over and it was also a memorable moment because there hadn't been anything like this. When, when they, when the council met to acknowledge the death of one sovereign and to, and to pave the way for the next one, there hadn't been a meeting like that in 72 years. So that wow. was really memorable um, to see. The transition happened so quickly. It happened the moment the last breath left the old queen. The first breath drawn by her son was as king. And that is the most tangible benefit of the hereditary system. There could be a downside. If Charles was a complete doofus, some people think he is, but I don't, then then I suppose that could be a problem. But the, the role of the crown is pretty well hedged by constitutional reality and precedent. So it, Charles admitted it when he said he understood that he could no longer fight the way he did before for some of the causes he believed in. If, if the queen ruled the longest of any head of state, Charles was stuck being next of kin and the next king longer than anyone has ever been in that position. And he knew that the moment he would become king was a kind of straitjacket. He was constitutionally bound not to take sides on anything, to bite his tongue if there's things that he really didn't like, unless it was in the area that that he's thought to have a, a right to say these things. The government of the day, the elected government, speaks for the people. And so he abdic- had to abdicate that. And, and represent the more dignified part of the state. But Canadians in a constitutional monarchy don't understand that the monarchy exists by our will. It's not because it's imposed. It's because 12 legislatures can't agree on what should be different. So that's why th- those legislatures, all of which are filled with elected representatives, they determined whether we have a monarchy or not. It's not, it's not anything that's imposed on us. Something's sort of forgotten. Um, mm. in, in all the debate right kind of goes along that same narrative of like this colonial imperialism yeah. sort of yeah yeah That's so much i'd like to unpack with what you just said but what you're saying largely here is in terms of uh our now king charles he was yeah. ready for this <laughs> he's he's been ready a long time people speculate that he he winced every time the old national anthem was sung, God save the queen, long may she live, reign over us. I don't think he ever winced. I don't think all the stuff about him longing and lusting to be king is true because he accomplished so much as Prince of Wales. He, I mean, there were, of course, there were controversies. He, he had a disastrous marriage, and that is a good example of that guy trying to please too many people and not being able to get what he wanted, and it ended up disastrously. But they resolved it. I could come back again about all the business of trouble inside the royal family. But but Charles is the first to have really sounded the alarms about climate change. He was the first to, of a big figure to announce the importance of, of indigenous voices, and the first to sound the alarm against mindless, mindless bits of architecture. Many of the things he warned about and that he was dismissed as a bit of a loon have all become commonly accepted now. So it takes a lot of courage to do that. He had a, an incredible platform, and uh, lots of people said he was abusing it. He didn't. He, there, there's no one defines what an heir to the throne can or cannot say, just common sense and constitutional precedent. He never really went beyond the sort of confines that would be thought totally questionable. And and now now it's it's he has to give up some of that. It doesn't mean he doesn't stop thinking, but it means that he cannot espouse it the way he did before. And that's the kind of constitutional straitjacket that, that he's in. The constitutional straitjacket that Charles is now lined up in, you got to play a part in connecting one of the passions of his, which is raising up the indigenous voice 
yeah. from Canada, and you were sort of the the go between in delivering a gift to him uh, the day before the Queen's funeral. Tell me about what that was and and why that was maybe extra significant uh, from his standpoint. So, um, in Canada, there's a unique relationship with the crown and it's through indigenous uh, nations. And this goes way back in our history to uh, the reign of Queen Anne, which is the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century. And the first major trips from indigenous people from North America to the old world were five indigenous chiefs, one of whom died on the hazardous ship going over, but they went over as heads of their heads of their nations. And they were greeted as they were known as the four kings of Canada, and they were taken to the court of Queen Anne and treated as heads of state and accorded all the usual uh, amenities in those days that heads of state each other. So what's the real politic there? The real politic is the British wanted a treaty with them to uh, conspire against the French in Quebec. This was, this was, this was nation-to-nation stuff, and, and the, the indigenous leaders also wanted it because they were in dispute with some some other indigenous communities. But that established a treaty relationship between the Crown and the First Nations of North America. Now, the particular First Nations that came, the Mohawks, were actually from what, what territory is now upstate New York. But they had always they always sided with the British in any disputes in the colonial history of North America. And that included the American Revolution. They sided with the British against the American revolutionaries. And that means when the revolutionaries won. They had to clear out of their home in upstate New York, and they moved to uh, where Prince Edward County is, in just the other side of the water. And in gratitude for that, the Crown called their place of worship Chapel Royal. Chapel Royals had existed in England for centuries, when they were just places that where the sovereign prayed at. And initially, they were just priests and choirs that traveled around with, you know, with Elizabeth or Henry. Or, but eventually there were, there were actual buildings, one in St. James Palace, one in Holyrood House in Scotland, one in you know Windsor Castle. What happened with the indigenous communities, this was a, sort of a unique honor. It doesn't exist anywhere outside of, out of the United Kingdom. And there were two approved of. And then a third one just recently by Queen Elizabeth at my college, uh, where I was the head of college, um, the Queen agreed because it had an association with the Mississaugas. The other two chapels were in Canada associated with the Mohawk Nation. Anyway... In indigenous lore, tobacco is a sacred and medicinal crop, and exchanging tobacco is a sign of friendship and treaty. And so I was tasked with with bringing gifts of tobacco to be given to um, one of the the Chapel Royal at St. James Palace, where I had a connection. And they stayed on the altar there, and two weeks later they were presented to the king. And uh, at some point he will have a chance to present those back to uh, the leaders of that community. Now, what's all that saying? Uh, It says that this king in this particular time in our history has a role to play in reconciliation. And Mm. it's something that's really interesting because the king is a bridge between the so-called settler community and the indigenous communities. And if we allow him to do that, he can play a really important role and help some of the horrible wounds that have particularly recently afflicted the country. When will this uh, re-exchanging of the tobacco take place in Canada? When do you expect? Oh, I imagine that when he makes his first trip to Canada as king, um, he'll be bringing that tobacco along with him. I was just the pack horse that 
took it over there. <laughs> but I had the honor of see, going into service in, in the Chapel Royal at St. James Palace and seeing it on the altar. And it was the it was the, the the chaplain at that chapel who was the chief chaplain to the sovereign. He was to Queen Elizabeth and to and he is now to King Charles. He's responsible for conveying it. And he's coming to Canada next month or the month after that, because he's basically come to see how the chapels royal over here are, are working. Just a friendly visit, but it'd be quite wonderful to have him. And he did some of his training back in Canada. Is that right? He did. He did his early training up in northern Manitoba. And it was because of that, when our request went through, I think the the the, 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 the civil servants at um, Buckingham Palace, the gray men, as, as Prince Harry calls them, the horrible gray men, they said <laughs> probably that the, she shouldn't do it because it, every, every second, every two-bit church will want to be a chapel royal. And she said, well, we should let Paul discuss this. And Paul was her chaplain. And he had this experience in northern Manitoba, and he said it's a wonderful idea. It's they've they've secured the support of a of an important indigenous nation, and it's an attempt to try and heal some of the wounds that the church itself have helped cause. So um, she approved it personally. It's a big deal. Wow, incredible! Just going back to England when you were there, covering this so fully. Uh, you're at this intimate service uh, the day before the funeral that was nationally televised, broke all kinds of records. Uh, but you're there to write a book, to pump this out in a quick timeline. Yeah. Did the pressure of that ever get to you at all? Or just being no. as seasoned of a writer as you are and you knowing this file, it was like, I'm enjoying this and I get the job done. In this case, it was only 25,000 words, which is like five magazine articles. A normal book is um, between 90 and 120,000 words. Secondly, I knew the file pretty well. Thirdly, I was excited about it. Fourthly, in terms of this institution, the Crown, it is so easy to check facts on the internet. I mean, compared to the old days when I, I mean, I'm getting on, I'm a bit long of tooth, but um, <laughs> the old days you'd have to go to libraries and, and everything. Now it's, everything is so available. It was not a problem to produce a manuscript of around 25,000 words in under three weeks. It just wasn't that difficult. The only thing I was worried about was that writing so fast was, was how many mistakes have I made. So I got it out to people I trusted and we found some of them. But since this publication, which is it's gone over well, it's so selling well and it's been well regarded. But um, I have people who know more about the file than I do. And they have located they've located three mistakes I made, small ones to do with timing and also some misprints. And I've taken note of it, so I'm hoping there's a second printing. But my proofreaders are all out there with my with the readers. So and I get to go back. The, the, the television, I got to go on television with Lisa LaFlamme. You remember her from of course, CTV yeah. and she got yeah. fired because she changed mm -hmm. the color of her hair or something stupid like that. <laughs> and But uh, City TV in Toronto hooked up with Rogers and in turn hooked up to CNN, sent her over to cover the funeral. And I just, I just ran into her. I knew her a little bit. And um, she said, would you be my wingman? And come on, I've got a, an English lady and another Canadian who lives here. I said, sure. So I got to be uh, one of the people that were chatting about, about the, at the funeral. And it turned out that little broadcast outdid CBC, CTV, and Global. And that's why she's going back for the coronation. And I get to go back too. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. The two <laughs> amazing events in one year. Wow. That is incredible. Tell me about other memorable moments that you had during these weeks 
around the time of the of the funeral and the ascension that you would have seen that maybe viewers wouldn't have from our vantage points? That for me, the most moving thing was something I didn't, you know, the, the, the Queen's coffin was in, in this famous uh, Westminster Hall that's been there for about a thousand years. And um, it was, this was before the funeral itself, but it was when the public was allowed to go through and they had, they had ceremonial guards, plus also members of the Royal family stood, guard around the coffin but in scotland there's a group called the the royal archers they're they're, they're in mists of history there but they are their official they're official um, bodyguards uh, that i just use that word loosely but they have a ceremonial function like yeoman guards in, in london the beef eaters the the art the royal archers are always on duty when the queen or the king is in scotland and they they mounted the the uh catafalque at westminster hall along with in turn, you know, people just stay there for about 20 minutes and then take a rest and then another group of people come in and take up the four corners of the coffin. Well, I had um, a dear friend of mine who I've known a long time is from Scotland and he's he's an archer and his son William's an archer. And William came out to Canada and spent a summer with my family, um, helped us with our kids and before he went to university. And then he went on, he had his own family and I was able to watch him in his archer's outfit mount the guard. It was very moving for me mm. to see that because I've known him since he was a young guy. It was weird because I, I hadn't actually during doing all the preparation work and going around and doing stuff on with, with Miss Laflamme, I hadn't actually paused to ponder what the death of, of the Queen meant to me. And seeing this almost a godson mount the catafalque was deeply moving. And it was the first time I realized this is a memorable thing that's happening that I'd lived to see. Someone that's been around on this throne for 70 years, and here's a connection I have that's steeped in Scottish history, Canadian Canadian lore, was pretty something. So that was a, a very special moment for me. John, there was all sorts of hymns and scripture uh, around the funeral. What did her faith mean to you? It was a, a profound and humble faith. She was a very humble Christian, the Queen. I asked Canon Paul, this is the chaplain at St. James. In the Anglican Church, there's divisions within the mm -hmm. denomination. High Church, which looks like Roman Catholic Church services with incense and everything, and Low Church, which is much more Protestant, if you, if you will. And so I asked, uh, I asked uh, the chaplain, I said, what is the queen? Is she High Church or Low Church? And he said, neither. She's Quick Church. She doesn't like long sermons. And it can start pounding on the desk of the few if they, they go on too long. And I thought that was interesting. She, I'm reliably told, she said her prayers every night. Um, she believed that she had a duty to God to do the best she could with, with the life that she was given. As she said, as long as she lives, she would be of service. And I don't know that there's an oath that's been better kept in my knowledge. Wonderful. Well, this has been an enlightening conversation. John Fraser, appreciate your time and your contributions to Canada. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is a wonderful interview. Thank you for giving me a chance to, to talk like that. And if you want to find out more information on the monarchy, Canada's history, some really interesting insights that John brought up that will be linked at the show notes, davidmanmedia.com. Also, you can pick up a copy of John's book, Funeral for a Queen, 12 Days in London. Next time on Culture at the Crossroads. Once on the Ontario Science Table, David Fisman remains one of the most respected epidemiologists in the country. The University of Toronto professor joins the show to talk about life beyond the height of the pandemic 
including why it's got researchers like him now focused on shared air. Ultimately, I think you know, I think in I think in 20 or 30 years, people look back on the bad old days and say, oh yeah, they used to have these terrible infectious diseases that would cause problems because people didn't know how important it was to keep keep viruses and bacteria out of indoor air, but now we know so that won't happen anymore. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. 